Welcome to my talk, the podcast series brought to you by ISS Market Intelligence. Thank you so much for tuning in. The focus of our discussions uh, on the, my talk podcast is the global retail financial services uh, marketplace. And it's many aspects, um, many subsectors, asset management, wealth management, life insurance, banking, fintech. We love them all for more than three decades. Mm. We at ISS Market Intelligence have been passionate students of this business. And our mission here on my talk is to uh, peek behind the, the uh, industry headlines and just try to kind of uh, 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 lift the veil a little bit and try to dissect some of the developments in the business around the world uh, with the help of industry uh, experts and thought leaders. So uh, we do create episodes uh, monthly, sometimes uh, more uh, frequently um, if we have time, because we do have day jobs as well as researchers here at Market Intelligence. But if you do enjoy this episode uh, of my talk, please remember to subscribe to our podcast on your preferred uh, platform um, of choice. My name is Goshka Folda. I'm your host and Global Head of Research at ISS Market Intelligence. So those of you following this year's um, um, uh, My Talk series, you know that uh, throughout the past several episodes, we've kind of done a world tour and focused on the sales environment for asset management and for investment funds specifically, and took a bit of a, of a global um, uh, uh, view of what's going on right now. And clearly, the sales environment for investments and investment funds um, uh, at large is not great. So now we are going to, in this episode, we're going to step back a little bit and we turn our sights on to the future, understanding that right now we're living in a bit of a challenging uh, macroeconomic and market backdrop, what what does the future hold for the asset management business? And joining me today to discuss this topic, and uh, uh, he will uh, in this uh, by joining today, he will actually claim the ribbon for the most appearances on my talk. Is my colleague and friend Christopher Davis, head of U.S. fund research at ISS Market Intelligence. Christopher is fresh off um, from putting the bow. Um, uh, the bow on uh, our annual state of the market report, which we lovingly, lovingly referred to as STOM, uh, focused on the future of retail products in the U.S. asset management business. Welcome, Christopher. Hi, I'm, I'm glad to be a repeat guest. I hope to never relinquish uh, my award as, as most, uh, most frequent guest. Uh, uh, absolutely, Christopher. You always have fascinating uh, things to share with us. So, uh, Christopher, um, uh, there's just so much to uh, uh, to discuss. Uh, the report is chock full of interesting ideas. So let us jump right in. Um, we understand that no one can see the future perfectly, but uh, uh, tell us how you put together the forecast and some of the some of the thoughts and and the key drivers that you considered as as you were building this. Well, um, you know, what, one thing I want to make clear is that, you know, this isn't just an exercise in extrapolating historical trends forward. Uh, if, if we did that, my, you know, our job would be a lot easier. Um, we would just look at the data, see what's happening and say, that's what's going to happen over the next five years. It'd be easy, but we'd be wrong a lot. Um, you know, so we use all of our rich data sets. Uh, that we have at our disposal. We use publicly available data such as market forecasts, 
um, data available from the Federal Reserve on the health uh, of, of U.S. households to get an understanding of um, investors' wherewithal uh, to invest. And, you know, we also, um, you know, consider, uh, we look at historical trends and we consider whether they're going to accelerate, decelerate, stay the same. We think about new innovations that might make the future a lot different than the past. We put all this together. Uh, we put our heads together collectively as an organization. We're a global organization and we can harness insights from wherever they lie. And, you know, so this year, um, you know, we came up with an outlook that actually points to a decent, if not necessarily uh, spectacular outlook for asset managers um, in, in absolute terms. You know, we think long-term funds are going to grow about $12 trillion in, in assets over the next five years, which is a pretty healthy pool to swim in if you're in an asset manager. So um, we, we do live in a challenging sales environment. We expect that to persist um, through this year. Uh, but beginning next year, I think you, you should see you know, a healthier um, sales environment. The past five have been kind of an unprecedentedly terrible environment for sales. Um, and so, you know, it's very unlikely to persist. We think things do, you know, return to average, even if the average isn't great, a return to a um, return to average when you're at where we're at now constitutes an improvement. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, that uh, and 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 actually, when you think about that kind of top line of twelve trillion dollars in growth and assets under management for for the the U.S. business over the next five years, that's a that's a very impressive uh, number. And uh, you mentioned new innovations. We'll return to this topic in a couple of uh, uh, a bit later. But um, with respect to that uh, kind of growth opportunity, um, who are the likely winners and losers uh, from from uh, from where you? stand at this moment uh, looking into your crystal ball? Well, you know, some of the winners are some of the same winners we've articulated in years past. At least when you look at things from a very asset uh, under management perspective, um, you know, one winner we see is bond funds. Um, This has been kind of a perennial view of ours given the demographic uh, factors at play. Uh, But last year we saw uh, record outflows uh, in bond funds. You know, we saw historic outflows with interest rates um, creating a different dynamic that we had never seen. I should say never seen. Many investors had never seen You know, a, a situation where equity and bond, bond, bond markets were falling at the same time. Um, so that was kind of a revelation to a lot of investors. And a lot of times these kinds of uh, negative environments leave a bad taste uh, in investors' mouth that leads to kind of a slow recovery in flows. Um, it, but we think higher interest rates in a more normalized environment will bring bond investors back into the fold. The demographics argue for that as well. Um, the remaining baby boomers uh, will be moving into retirement over the next five years. And that's a very powerful impetus. Uh, another one that we've been thinking about as well uh, is... The, the impact of higher rates actually being a detracting factor uh, from equity fund flows. Uh, investors have held equities to make up for the shortfall uh, that low rates uh, uh, cause in investor portfolios. So now you can generate income by holding bonds instead of trying to uh, boost returns with stocks. 
So we think that's another headwind that equity funds will have. Uh, and as far as losers go, in a similar vein, not only do we see equity funds seeing outflows, especially U.S. equity funds, we think this persistent trend in U.S. equity, active U.S. equity funds, um, seeing outflows will continue. Um, that has something to do with the aging demographic. Uh, a lot of the people cashing out today hold disproportionately hold active funds. They bought Fidelity Magellan in the 1990s, for example, um, when it was hot. Um, their holdings remain actively managed to this day, uh, but they're kind of the ones cashing out. Um, so that's one reason. And something also, other factors that we do explore in the report in greater depth is um, uh, the impact that uh, vehicles like SMAs and CITs have had. Uh, they've accelerated. Uh, adoption has accelerated in recent years. And you know what we found when mutual funds, especially active mutual funds, lose market share, that's really a permanent shift because it represents a permanent change in how investors are building their portfolios. It may be that they've chosen uh, to index their portfolios rather than keep them active. Um, you know, once you go index, you rarely go back. Um, and uh, SMA, similarly, you purchase an SMA for a particular reason, probably from a tax management uh, point of view. And uh, if it makes sense for you today to hold an SMA, it's probably going to make sense for you to hold it uh, tomorrow. And we see the the kind of the last ball work that the you know, active mutual fund industry is hung on to is the defined contribution space. Um, ETFs, you know, are not held or cannot really be held in a defined contribution account. So, uh, you know, that's been one protection, but we've seen collective investment trusts or CITs taking a lot of share, um, undermining the traditional mutual fund business. In fact, there are now more CIT assets than fund assets uh, in DC plans. DC or target funds, which are the, you know, bulwark of the DC space, um, are seeing outflows in the mutual fund space, but inflows in the CIT space. So we see uh, threats on multiple levels. And I, I mentioned in the beginning, though, that from an asset under management perspective, um, it's easy to identify the winners and losers. We have to take a step back and think about really what matters. Of course, assets do matter, but the only reason they matter is because assets um, generate fee revenues, and fee revenues are what you know power all managers' economic fortunes. And um, from an economic standpoint, uh, the situation isn't quite as bad uh, for active managers. Um, in, in fact, even though we've seen dramatic declines, dramatic losses in market share over the past five years, from something like 60% to 50%, um, active funds still generated almost 90% of the industry's total revenues. And they'll generate about 84% over the next five years of all of the industry's revenues. So when you take a step back, uh, you see that the AON picture doesn't accurately reflect the industry's, you know, true financial fortunes. Yeah, those are so many important points, Christopher, and there. And clearly, uh, I encourage everyone to to um, 
get hold of the report and read it because uh, your point about revenues is so well taken that that there is still a very high percentage of the the kind of you you mentioned ninety percent plus of revenues that are tied to the active side of the book of business. Also, there are also some kind of at the backdrop, Christopher. I guess there are some mitigating factors in that kind of constant erosion of the share of active. Let's see, depending on how how the markets go, you know, the beta strategies, the beta beta replication strategies might suffer because I think that, you know, they've really come into their own in the post-2000, first a little bit of a bump after 2002, but then post-2008 and nine fiasco, you know, when the market, the bulls were running for a better part of 12 or 13 years. So let's see how that uh, unveils in the in the coming years. But um, are there examples in your report where you depart from the, the industry consensus opinion and that you'd like to highlight, you know, some myth-breaking or some 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 uh, out-there ideas uh, uh, that, that, that we're putting out there? Well, you know, if you read the, the financial press, uh, probably for the better part of two years, you read constantly about how asset managers have been bulking up their alternatives capabilities. There's been a lot of enthusiasm for alternatives and for good reason. Um, Often investors, as I alluded to earlier, have relied on bonds for diversification. You know, they don't behave like stocks, so bonds are a great foil to stocks. But if we live in an era where that's not the case, alternatives make more sense. Um, But I I would say one of the biggest changes from uh, our historical forecast is, you know, we have pretty uh, modest expectations for asset growth for liquid alternative mutual funds and ETFs. Um, In fact, other than standalone allocation funds, your standard 60-40 type of funds, which we have the the lowest uh, expected growth rate alternatives are are, our second lowest. And um, this is a change about, uh, a change of view for us. It may be a departure from industry industry consensus, not in the sense that we think alternatives are, um, you know, Primed for poor growth, but we think a lot of the growth is going to happen outside of the traditional fund structure. And you know, 2023 uh, has kind of bolstered our conviction in this. We see investors kind of running away from a lot of these, you know, traditional alternative structures in the mutual fund format. Um, and that's not the kind of environment you would expect to see if. Uh, alternatives were going to be, you know, uh, liquid alternative mutual funds were going to be the way that investors were going to diversify their portfolios. And a big reason for this is the emergence of alternative ways to uh, assess or access alternatives. We have, you know, private uh, we have technology platforms like iCapital. We have the emergence of interval funds, um, you know, that allow retail investors to access uh, alternatives in new ways. In fact, the uh, capital platform, I think, has more uh, AUM than the entire uh, liquid mutual fund uh, grouping. So I think that points to kind of a, it's, it's a new day when it comes to alternatives and how investors are going to access them. Now, if we look far enough into the future, I, you know, what we call semi-private or private alternatives will somehow be 
kind of viewed as public, just as we kind of view today what are liquid alternatives. They always weren't liquid alternatives. We've made them so. That probably does happen over time. Um, so I think there is an opportunity for managers to benefit from the growth of alternatives, but they're going to have to be able to distribute their capabilities outside the, the traditional fund format if, if they want to leverage the opportunity. Christopher, I could not agree uh, more with you. Uh, you know, in the uh, last couple of weeks, I, I had a, a lunch with uh, uh, one, a CEO of uh, one of the largest uh, um, asset management organizations uh, in Canada. And, the, uh, you know, they were mentioning just how successful their illiquid um, uh, alternative strategy has been with retail investors through their advisory channels. And I think that's, uh, as you pointed out, that, you know, liquid alternatives within the wrapper of the 40 Act funds or in Canada, uh, mutual fund, uh, you know, 81102, uh, it's 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 one way to get there, but there is just a proliferation, and I think a much greater advisor acceptance um, uh, of alternatives in product wrappers that are not traditional. So I I absolutely agree with you, but I think it's a really uh, kind of a, a good and interesting discussion and opinion, and uh, this brings me back to the uh, to the topic of the of the product wrapper. Uh, I know you and I talk about this quite a lot, or have talked about it over the years uh, quite a lot. Um, you were you were one of the early industry experts to really put your um, you know uh, 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 put your vote for active uh, actively uh, managed uh, ETFs uh, or you know um, uh, non transparent uh, versions etc. Um, what what do you think about the the whole ETF um, product uh, stream as you look at the at the future? Do you think that a lot of asset managers or active managers are worried that that um, that kind of conversion into the ETF structure might can, cannibalize their existing fund business. Is that something that they're worried about? Um, what what other considerations um, should active managers be thinking about? Well, I mean, you know, Steve Jobs uh, famously said that if you don't cannibalize yourself, somebody will do it for you. And of course, he was in a very privileged position when he said that he was thinking about cannibalizing the iPod with the iPhone. Um, if you're cannibalizing a lower profitability product with a higher profitability one, that is kind of a, a CEO's dream come true. Uh, most business leaders have a more complicated trade-off to make, and I think that's true in our industry. I think the fear is you launch a less expensive active ETF, um, existing mutual fund investors switch over to the ETF, and then you're trading higher fee assets for lower fee assets, and that doesn't make uh, most asset managers happy. Uh, I mean, I guess if the, versus the alternative, you lose the assets altogether. You know, the, the lower fee. Uh, option is, is is a more palatable one versus nothing at all. Um, but we did some work for the report to understand whether cannibalization is really a problem or not. And, you know, we found by looking at all of the major, uh, many major fund providers that have launched uh, active ETFs, um, uh, and we found no evidence of major cannibalization um, uh, across any of them. We looked at JP Morgan, Fidelity, 
uh, Capital Group, uh, which had very, its first very high-profile launches in, in 2022. And um, they primarily have been winning business from rival mutual fund providers. And in very few cases, you see investors switching from in-house mutual funds to in-house ETFs. So I think that's a um, an overdone worry. That wouldn't be the thing I, I would be worried about. Um, I think making sure where you can make a competitive, where you can have competitive differentiation versus the entire marketplace is a lot more important. You are entering in a different competitive set, um, a more limited one. You have less competition in the ETF realm, but people are putting their best foot forward. So your competitors, not competing against your average competitor, you're competing against a handful of competitors who are putting some of their best and most well-known properties and managers forward. So that's something to really um, think about. I think you also have to be cognizant of your odds of success. Um, you know, we took a look at uh, the odds of a new ETF making it to a financially viable scale within a reasonable amount of time. And, you know, you're lucky that if you're you're a new ETF, uh, if 20%, if, you know, you have a one in a five chance. And that's, and, and that's, you know, often the best case scenario of making it to a million dollars in revenues, annual revenues over a three-year period. Um, the flip side is, and this is, I think, why managers are behaving rationally uh, by playing these not-so-great odds. If you do succeed, you'll get most of the revenues created by new ETFs. And, you know, we know that, especially in the ETFs, especially in the ETF realm, first mover advantages really matter. Um, and that's especially the case if you're somebody like a capital or fidelity or any, you know, large um, uh, asset manager uh, that has a lot of scale and brand equity, uh, they can leverage that um, and be successful as a new active ETF, even if, you know, they don't have the three-year record. So there's not a... Um, what has surprised me, you mentioned that we were kind of early uh, in the active ETF uh, bull camp. And that may be true, but what surprised me, if you asked me back then why active ETFs would have taken off, it was the emergence of the the kind of semi-transparent ETFs, which allowed active managers to shield their holdings from public view to avoid front running, but while still avoiding... Um, the problem of having, you know, discounts to NAV and so forth. Um, I kind of thought that was going to be the impetus. And a lot of active managers did too. Um, but we were really wrong about that. It was uh, investors overwhelmingly prefer transparency. Um, you know, it, it also happened to be that, you know, the most successful active ETF of, of 2021 uh, and, and into 2022 were the ARC ETFs. Um, they were fully transparent, so much so that the manager was, you know, uh, disclosing the trades as they happened on CNBC. Um, and so that created this narrative that transparency and activeness can work. And then when Capital came to market with their transparent ETFs, um, it really took a DFA as well. It, you know, made this idea that, you know, active and Active ETFs and transparency don't work together. Well, they clearly do. Some of the world's largest asset managers can use them um, in, in a transparent format. And, you know, the last thing that I would be thinking about is how you're going to go to market. We've seen um, 
you know, a handful of large providers like JP Morgan and DFA converting their funds into ETFs as a way to, to enter the market. Um, this is not a guaranteed, you know, sales. For, this is not guaranteed to improve your sales. Um, we found no systematic pattern of, of switching to ETFs making your sales better. Um, so don't do it thinking uh, that it's going to immediately work for you. But there may be um, instances where it does make sense, where you have a um, where you have a uh, uh, a strategy that is not getting a lot of garnering a lot of sales in the mutual fund format, but you have kind of a uniform shareholder base, uh, a base that would be amenable to holding ETFs as the alternative. That was the secret for DFA. A lot of its RIA heavy um, uh, base is very friendly to ETFs. So they probably prefer the ETF over the mutual fund format. So I think that's a consideration that you have to think, but I, I, I think the conversion is kind of a limited uh, opportunity um, more so than how this, how active ETFs are going to uh, grow in the future. Um, Christopher, it's such a valid point. And I think that as you talk about the go-to-market strategies for those active ETFs, um, it's, it's also about figuring out how to um, uh, make a case for the inclusion of the, the set strategies in, in this particular format within the, the kind of the newly emerging and evolving portfolio construction, both by advisors and by investors, as you mentioned before. So I think that this is an evolving topic. As a matter of fact, we just uh, did a, a, a large advisor pulse study um, uh, in our uh, U.S. division and uh, we'll be delivering a report on uh, on the evolving science of portfolio constructions construction by advisors and uh, active ETFs are, are a big part of that upcoming report. So uh, look out for that report. I'll certainly uh, make sure that we highlight it in an upcoming edition of the podcast. Christopher, as always, thank you so, uh, so much. Um, it was a very, uh, very interesting, uh, you know, just how much personally I like to think about the future and contemplate the future. And this is probably um, the most interesting time to be doing just that. As you mentioned, you know, the some of the, the, the market and interest rate developments um, have been just very, very unique. Uh, maybe this is as interesting a time um, as when we first started doing this at our predecessor firms in the late 80s and early 90s. Um, anyone who knows me knows that I'm into very long range ideas and, uh, you know, that contractive wave of the baby boomer generation coming to shore towards retirement and having driven the growth in the asset and wealth management business in North America for the past 30 odd years. Uh, you mentioned that, you know, that's going to be a, a, a super interesting development and beyond demographics, we've got regulation. Uh, uh, SEC has been busy, um, as we heard on uh, recently, uh, Eric Pan at uh, ICI mentioned, uh, technology developments and so on and so on and so on. So collectively, all these forces are making it very interesting for market uh, um, uh, uh, forecasters to think about the future 
um, you know, and the, and especially in the U.S., um, uh, I think it's it's so intriguing for actually all of our global re- listeners because, as my great friend and mentor Avi Nakmani um, uh, used to call uh, the U.S. the the world's greatest laboratory of ideas on asset and wealth management, and that is definitely the case. So, thank you very much uh, for sharing the pre- preview of this important re- research um, on this podcast, uh, Christopher. Um, and, oh, it is my pleasure. <laughs> thank you, Christopher. And that is a wrap us, um, everyone. Uh, for us in October, I encourage uh, our listeners to come back to join us uh, throughout the fall for our monthly episodes. Um, as always, I also encourage you to ping us with ideas about specific topics or industry guests that you would like uh, for us to feature. Thank you. And on behalf of ISS Market Intelligence, uh, let's keep our crystal balls polished. The future is fun to contemplate. Thank you.